The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They did cite a couple local precedents. There was a gag order in Roger Stone's case, a district court level, uh, but only against the lawyers, really. I mean, it, it was exceedingly narrow with respect to Stone. And then Tanya Chutkin herself issued one relating to Marina Butina. And uh, it, it, it did involve the party, but again, it was focused a lot on the lawyer. So this is sort of a, a wide open area. The uh, Trump's brief is due September 25th. That's Monday. And then uh, the prosecutors will reply uh, Saturday, September 30th. So she's giving a fair amount of time to brief this. She knows it's sensitive. And uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I'm Scott Anderson, and this is a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast for September 23rd, 2023. This past Thursday, I hosted Trump's Trials and Tribulations, Lawfare's weekly live video chat about developments in the many ongoing trials circulating around former President Trump. I was joined by Lawfare's two leading court watchers, senior editor Roger Parloff and legal fellow Anna Bauer, both of whom have been closely following developments in courthouses around the country, both from afar and sometimes up close and personal. We talked about removal proceedings in Georgia, a proposed gag order of the former president in Washington, D.C., and new news about how former President Trump allegedly mishandled classified information of Florida, as well as the coming wave of litigation around the country seeking to disqualify Trump from the presidency under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This is, of course, a live conversation that happens online every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. If you would like to join and ask a question, be sure to visit Lawfare's Patreon account at patreon.com lawfare and become a material supporter. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Trump's Trials and Tribulations, Removal, Gag Order, and Disqualification. Oh my. Let me go ahead and get started with a few developments from the week before we turn to audience questions. Anna, let me turn to you. You have been enjoying another slate of removal hearings uh, featuring some of our favorite characters, some of my new favorite characters, which are the fake elector defendants in the Fulton County trial, but also our longstanding favorite, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Clark, who has been taking strong stances on Burning Man, among other issues over the last week or two, um, but now is taking some strong legal stances in court on removal of his case to federal court. Tell us about the hearing that you witnessed today, some of the other hearings that are going on. Let's start with Jeffrey, and then we'll move over to the fake electors after that. 
Right. So yeah, another day, another removal hearing in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so on Monday, we had Jeffrey Clark's hearing. Uh, Jeffrey Clark, for those who don't remember, just need a reminder, is a former DOJ official in the Trump administration. He was the acting head of the civil division at the time of the conduct for which he's been indicted in Fulton County. Uh, he is charged with attempted false writings uh, along with racketeering uh, in Fulton County. That uh, attempted false writing charge relates to a draft letter that he wanted the Justice Department to send to Georgia state officials, including Brian Kemp, that urged them to call a special session of the legislature to appoint its own electors on the basis that that, there, that the Justice Department had allegedly uh, uncovered uh, things that could suggest that there had been fraud in the election. And the Fulton County District Attorney's Office has said that that statement was false. So Jeffrey Clark is, is trying to move his case, just like Mark Meadows, into federal court. We had this hearing before Judge Steve Jones on Monday, and Jeffrey Clark did not show up, uh, unlike Meadows did. He did not testify. And I think that that is going to be one of the big issues here for uh, Clark's efforts to get his case into the federal court, because the burden is on the removing party, which here is Clark, to show some evidence that, you know, they were a federal officer, that they were acting within the scope of their office and that they can raise a, a federal defense. But because Jeffrey Clark didn't show up to testify, all that they had was this declaration that Clark had, had you know, written up beforehand. Uh, and Judge Jones did not admit that into evidence. So they don't really have any evidence that they, they were able to get into evidence other than a few exhibits. Um, and, and key here for Clark is that the main, you know, defense that he's relied on is supremacy clause immunity. And under that defense, you have to show that you have uh, a subjective belief that what you did was in the scope of your federal office. Uh, so it's going to be very hard uh, for, for Clark to prove that when they don't have any evidence of his subjective belief. Uh, and they, you know, just generally have not been able to raise enough to meet their burden. Uh, so that's what happened on Monday. Uh, and then yesterday we had the fake electors hearing. They are also trying to move their case to federal court. These are three of the uh, folks who voted for Donald, Donald Trump on December 14th, 2020, even though Joe Biden had won the popular vote in Georgia and, and the Democratic slate was, was ultimately certified in Georgia for that reason. But these are the fake electors who, uh, you know, there's three of them, Kathy Latham, uh, uh, David Schaefer, and um, Sean Still, who's now a Georgia state senator. And they are have made this argument that because they were acting as so-called contingent electors, they were somehow transformed into federal officers. They claim that because the Constitution provides for the Electoral College and, and because the balloting and counting of uh, electors is is something that is governed by federal law, that that therefore means that they are federal officers who are acting within the scope of their federal authority and that they should be able to remove their case to, to federal court. Judge Jones was not, uh, 
uh, did not seem very interested in that argument. He he made the point that uh, the Supreme Court in a 1952 case said that electors are not federal officials. So that would mean that on that very first prong of this removal test, the electors would, would fail to be able to move their case to federal court. Uh, the response from the defense was that, well, you know, the Supreme Court did say this, but it was dicta, meaning that, you know, it wasn't a part of the, the reasoning of the case that was really necessary and it was kind of said in passing. And so therefore it's not binding precedent. And Jones responded, well, <laughs> there's dicta, but then there's Supreme Court dicta. Uh, so he seemed to be, uh, very, uh, skeptical of the argument that the electors should move their case to federal court in both Clark's case and in the electors case. I, I would uh, be very surprised if he decides to allow removal. And I think that we will see a decision very quickly from him. Yesterday in the hearing with the fake electors, he noted that he had another decision to make on Monday. He didn't say what that ruling was, but I kind of got the sense that maybe he was referring to the Jeffrey Clark decision. Uh, and, and he didn't mention when he would make a ruling on the fake electors, but uh, it seems like it will be relatively quickly as it was in the Meadows case. Hopefully that's a good summary. No, very useful, incredibly useful. So a, qu a few quick questions. For Clark, you know, a complication for him, of course, is that he was undeniably a federal official for a scope of a lot of the allegedly criminal conduct he's involved here. He's a senior Justice Department official, head of ENRD, the, Na the Environment and National Resources Division, uh, as he had been before he got involved in the, some of his activities around January 6th and 2020 election. He was an environmental lawyer. A lot of the criminal activity, though, he was pursuing in a way that was actually contrary to the directions of some of his supervisors at the Justice Department. Um, and with some, I'm sure he will argue, was at the direction of the president, although, frankly, the record on that is quite muddied. Do we hear him address that? You know, where is he pointing to for the specific activities in question that are not part of the Environmental and Natural Resources Division he was engaged in? Do we Can we tell either from his statement, which I guess was not admitted, or maybe from the limited evidence that was brought in, how he's intending to argue that what he was doing is part of his federal duties, even though his bosses were telling him to cease and desist that. Yeah. So, I mean, this this was a big part of the hearing because, of course, the prosecution uh, district attorney's office, they argued that exactly what, what you just said, Scott, which is that, you know, uh, his superiors, uh, Jeff Rosen and, and Richard Donahue were telling him, this is not a part of your job. This is not even a part of anyone's job at the Justice Department. Why, you know, don't do this. Um, and, and in response, his counsel argued that, uh, well, it, it became his job because the president asked him to uh, get involved. And, and they kind of had this argument that, you know, the, the president embodies the executive, the Justice Department, even if there all are these policies that kind of try to separate communications between the White House um, and the Justice Department. It, it doesn't matter if there are policies because the constitutional authority of the president is so all encompassing that it means that if the president tells a Justice Department official uh, in the civil division to, you know, do this, then that means that it all of a sudden becomes within the scope of their office. But 
like you uh, said, Scott, the the issue here is that they didn't have any evidence that they put forward uh, about uh, that being the case. They they mentioned that you know they had some exhibits that they that they filed that were uh, related to news articles in which uh, the news articles report that uh, Trump uh, during a. a a White House meeting, uh, you know, discussed this with, with uh, various Justice Department officials, including Clark. Uh, they pointed to reporting uh, that indicated that Trump had asked for an introduction to Clark through uh, Congressman Scott Perry. So they pointed to these, you know, things that may or may not be admitted into evidence by Judge Jones. He mentioned that a lot of these things were exhibits that were attached to the declaration that that Clark. Uh, had tried to admit and that Jones denied admitting. Um, And and Judge Jones said he would look through those exhibits and make decisions about, you know, whether or not he was going to consider some of them and note it in his order. Um, But, you know, again, they just really did not have uh, any evidence that it was Trump that had actually, you know, directed Jeffrey Clark to take these actions and to get involved. Um, So it's unclear to me how Judge Jones could uh, have a basis for determining that, you know, Trump had actually said, uh, you know, I want you to do this, even though that is what his counsel tried to argue. And then, you know, also I will say that Jody Hunt, who uh, is a former uh, head of the civil division, which is the role that Clark, uh, he was the acting head of the civil division at the time. Uh, when this conduct occurred and, and Jody Hunt took the stand and testified on, on as a witness for the district attorney's office. And his testimony was very compelling in saying that, you know, in my experience in the civil division, which is the role that Jeff Clark had, this is not something that would have been in the scope of the role of the civil division. Uh, The only time we ever got involved in election matters is if there was a federal official who had been sued in their official capacity and we defended them. Uh, So I think that that was very compelling um, uh, testimony for the district attorney's office. And like I said, I just really did not get the sense from Judge Jones that he would be inclined to rule in Clark's favor. Excellent. Well, let's shift focus now away from the Fulton County proceedings to some of the other proceedings we're watching in D.C., uh, and then eventually we'll get to Florida as well. We've seen a couple developments in D.C. case that, of course, is being brought by the special counsel. We should note there's one line of briefing and argument that we saw come to fruition this week. We haven't seen a discussion, a decision, so we're not really going to discuss it. Um, that is the effort by former President Trump to recuse Judge Chutkin, who's overseeing that matter. Um, he filed his reply brief, so we can expect a decision on that probably in relatively short order, as it's the sort of matter that I think the judge would want to resolve pretty quickly. But we're not going to talk about that substantively today because... We're going to have an answer soon enough. We'll probably talk about it next week, I would guess, or the week after. Instead, Roger, let's talk about this request for a gag order we saw come from the special counsel's office this past week. Pretty notable development, something I think a lot of us have been expecting in all of these trials to some extent, um, but coming first and foremost in the kind of most politically charged case in a way, the DC one alleging, you know, former President Trump himself as the sole defendant, although with lots of unindicted co-conspirators. In, in interference with the 2020 election. It's a pretty notable step for the special counsel to take. What is their argument and how has it been received so far? 
Well, this is uh, an extremely sensitive matter, and there's there's really nothing like it, of course, when you when uh, given the context that this that Trump is running for president and he's the leading uh, Republican contender. The the uh, motion was filed back on September fifth, actually, but uh, the Trump was able to uh, postpone anything from happening for ten days by challenging the manner in which the government wanted to file it. They wanted to file a one part on the record redacted and then an unredacted version under seal that would contain a lot of interviews with people that had had supposedly uh, been the victims of witness intimidation. The, The way the redacted version of the motion goes, they recount sort of as a, uh, Mo, uh, they they recount how uh, a modus operandi, how uh, Trump behaved a- after the election, and the the way that he in made false statements about anyone who suggested that he had lost, and that these people in turn suffered grievous consequences that he knew about. And uh, for instance, Chris Krebs, who was not just fired, but his family was. Uh, apparently had death threats. Brad Raffensperger's family got death threats. Uh, Gabe Sterling famously, you remember him giving that impassioned statement at one point, someone's going to get killed. And that did not stop Trump from continuing the attacks. Ruby Freeman. So all of those are, are that's sort of the backdrop. And then he they, they show how post-indictment, he started doing the same thing. And he started doing it to the judge, to Jack Smith, to one of the lead prosecutors, Jay Bratt, to Bill Barr, who's a likely witness, to Mike Pence, who's a likely witness, and um, and that there have been consequences to these people. And some of those consequences are presumably in the witness interviews that we have not seen because those were filed under seal. So what they're hoping, what they're seeking is a a gag order that would read like this. Um, The parties in this case and their attorneys are prohibited from making or authorizing statements to the media or in public settings, including through social media, that pose a substantial likelihood of material prejudice to this case. Such statements include, but are not limited to, statements regarding the identity, testimony, or credibility of prospective witnesses, and disparaging and inflammatory or intimidating statements about any party, witness, attorney, court personnel, or potential jurors. The defendant is also prohibited from causing surrogates to make such statements. So that's part of it. And then as a, on the other hand, decide to try to protect themselves in terms of the First Amendment, it would also say this prohibition does not include, does not preclude the defendant or his attorney's dot, 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 from referring to public records of the court or um, announcing the scheduling or result of any stage of the process or requesting assistance in obtaining evidence, evidence or announcing without further comment that the defendant denies the charges. Now, that's a big thing uh, to ask for, and uh, especially in this context. And the two main precedents are uh, the Supreme Court precedents are the Sam Shepard case um, from 1960, a 1966 ruling. This was sort of the, this is the classic 
case of a case that's tainted by a carnival atmosphere. Sam Shepard was a neurosurgeon who uh, was charged with bludgeoning his pregnant wife to death uh, in his uh, home in uh, suburban uh, Cleveland in 1954. And it was an extraordinary situation. Not only were three of the four rows of the gallery devoted to press, but 20 members of the press were allowed to sit inside the bar of the of the court, you know, right behind the defendant who could not even confidentially speak to his lawyer without being heard three feet from the jury. Anyway, the whole thing was crazy. And at the end, the, the court did say, uh, the Supreme Court said the trial court might, it granted a habeas corpus. Uh, he was released and he won, he uh, was acquitted on his second trial. The uh, court said the trial court might well have proscribed extrajudicial statements by any lawyer, party, witness, or court official, which divulged prejudicial matters. And those included the identity of prospective witnesses or their probable testimony, any belief in guilt or innocence or like statements concerning the merits. The other key case is a 1991 case called uh, either Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada or Gentile. Uh, Gentile was a uh, lawyer and uh, he he, uh, was defending his client zealously and um, he was sanctioned and uh, it was a split ruling. It's a little unclear, but the majority said you can definitely prevent a lawyer from saying things with a substantial likelihood of that will cause a substantial likelihood of material prejudice. That's exactly the language, of course, that Judge Chutkin was using. And and the two principal evils that uh, these can be aimed at are one, comments that are likely to influence the actual outcome of the trial, and two, comments that are likely to prejudice the jury venire, that is the jury pool. The problem is that Gentile was about a lawyer, and it's much clearer that you can enter, uh, you can restrict a lawyer's statements than a defendant's statements, and much clearer still than a defendant who's running for president. And even in that ruling, there are likely, uh, there are statements that are endorsed by four justices that we will probably hear, be hearing again. Uh, Justice Kennedy and others said that, uh, speech critical of the exercise of the prosecutorial power lies at the very center of the First Amendment. They say things like public awareness of and criticism have even greater importance where the criticism questions the judgment of an elected public prosecutor. Our system grants prosecutors vast discretion at all stages of the criminal process. The public has an interest in its responsible exercise. So all of those doubtless will be invoked by Trump. And uh, in now we've only seen the uh, uh, prosecution motion. Uh, they did cite a couple local precedents. There was a gag order in Roger Stone's case, a district court level, uh, but only against the lawyers, really. I mean, it, it was exceedingly narrow with respect to Stone. And then Tanya Chutkin herself issued one relating to Marina Butina. And uh, it, it, it did involve the party, but again, it was focused a lot on the lawyer. 
So this is sort of a, a wide open area. The uh, Trump's brief is due September 25th. That's Monday. And then uh, the prosecutors will reply uh, Saturday, September 30th. So she's giving a fair amount of time to brief this. She knows it's sensitive and uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, definitely kind of virgin territory for this issue set and for the unique nature of the speech itself, the defendant, the target of the protective order, uh, or pardon me, of the gag order, it, it is it is definitely unique. Um, do we have a sense from public reactions as to the lines of argument we expect? I mean, we know Trump's defense attorneys and allies and proxies are often very vocal. We've had a few days of media responses. Have we seen any hints about what the major lines of pushback are, none of which I think are surprises, but I'm wondering if we've gotten any more granularity from from some of the usual avenues before the in advance of the filing? I, I haven't seen that. We've we have seen obviously a continuation, un, totally unfettered, of Trump himself. He, uh, you know, he appeared on Meet the Press. Uh, that was made possible by the initial uh, disputes that Trump's lawyers made that prevented even the briefings from starting for ten days. But uh, no, I, but I, I do suspect it will obviously be about First Amendment issues and some of the, some of the quotations I gave from Gentile give the, give the flavor. And then I was really surprised in the motion itself, there was no reference to a DC circuit case on point. You know, that's a sort of maybe in the reply, but we'll see something. And then these, these uh, gag orders that were mentioned were really directed uh, primarily at the lawyers. So uh, there was one from the Fifth Circuit that did allow talking about a party, but nothing uh, directly on point from the D.C. Circuit. And given how commonly this comes up, uh, I was surprised by that. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um I'm curious to see what the reply brief kind of comes up with, because maybe there's some other cases in the D.C. Circuit that aren't as favorable, given that they're the ones you would expect to deal with this intersection of political speech and a gag order more than any other court. That Fifth Circuit case was fairly, it was sort of on point. It was a, it, it was a prosecution of an insur- an elected insurance commissioner as one of five defendants, including the governor. And it was a very politically... Uh, it was a football and the, and the, the defendant was saying, you know, the sorts of things Trump is saying that the prosecutor is a, was off, off, you know, that it was a retaliatory, it was political, it was this, it was that. So that's a pretty close uh, analogy, but, um, you know, still Fifth Circuit and a while ago and not the president. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's shift focus to another case that's getting underway now in Minnesota. Um, There's another of kind of this first wave of probably what will be many trials related to whether former President Trump can stand as a candidate um, or whether he's disqualified from serving in the office of the presidency by virtue of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for his involvement in an insurrection, or at least what most many or if not most people consider to be an insurrection in and around January 6th. Um, tell us about this trial, where it is so far in Minnesota, what makes it kind of notable among these Section 3 cases? Yeah. Um, so just for for people coming in late, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is the provision that uh, basically says uh, 
simplifying tremendously uh, that insurrectionists can't hold most state or federal offices. It's a lot more complicated than that. So there have actually been a lot of cases filed recently, more than 30, according to around 30, according to Trump's attorneys. But most of those, and I'm speaking for myself at this point, uh, are frivolous. Um, They're being brought by individuals without lawyers. Um, They're not going anywhere. There are two that are brought by serious lawyers that are, uh, and there could be more. There could be more. I just can't, I I don't, but the two that are important that I know about are, there's one in Colorado and there's one in Minnesota. And the one in Minnesota is particularly interesting because the plaintiffs who are led by lawyers with the um, Free Speech for People group, which also led challenges uh, last year against uh, Madison Cawthorn and uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Section 3 challenges. They have found a way to bring it directly in the Minnesota Supreme Court. And that's really interesting because it suggests that if there's a ruling in the Supreme Minnesota Supreme Court, it can be quickly appealed or, or appeal can be sought to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, is, uh, they've scheduled uh, a uh, hearing, an oral argument for November 2nd. And uh, uh, the uh, ballot needs to, the primary ballot needs to be finalized in January. So you, you have a little, you might have a little time for an appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, the Minnesota Supreme Court at the moment is uh, five to two Democratic appointees that is uh, 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 appointed by uh, Democratic governors. That's going to change on October 2nd. It will become six to one Democratic appointees. And uh, uh, so that's a very interesting case. They did already issue a scheduling order, as I mentioned, setting down oral argument, and they asked for briefing on particular issues in particular. They want to be briefed on everything, but they singled out for attention uh, some technical issues and uh, procedural issues, uh, of which the most notable are uh, whether whether Section 3 is self-executing, which means this is a big, big some of the scholars who do not believe Section 3 is available say it's not self-executing, which would mean Congress would need to devise some enforcement mechanism, which is not currently in place, so you can't just invoke it. Uh, that's hotly disputed among scholars. Lots of other scholars say it's not self-executing. The other uh, issue is, can the president is the president covered by Section 3? And that gets to what I was saying earlier, which is that if you go look at Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, you'll see it's a very gnarly statute. And it says, you know, if you take an oath to uphold the Constitution in the process of becoming one of a list of offices, and then you commit insurrection or rebellion or give aid and comfort to enemies of the Constitution, you will be barred from having any of another list, a slightly different list of offices. And president is not there. The oath section talks about a federal officer. And so the question is, is the president a federal officer? The only oath 
Trump ever took was to become president. And uh, some scholars claim or argue that it, uh, he's not. And then uh, the, the language about the offices you're disqualified from is broader, but it's something like any office under the United States or of any state. So that's a little broader. Anyway, that's Minnesota. Colorado is uh, in the uh, state, is in a state district court, a state trial level court. And uh, the judge there is Judge Sarah Block Wallace. Uh, she was appointed in January by a Democratic governor. And um, she is has scheduled a week-long hearing to start October 30th. Um, and again, the day last day to certify the candidate for the primary ballot is January 5th. And in her, she, she understands she's, she was very clear that she knows she's sort of a way station along the way. And she's hoping to get a ruling by Thanksgiving and get this to the um, state Supreme court. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Wonderful. That's, that's a phenomenal update. And one other piece of news that's come up in the Section 3 context, that is we have a flip-flopper uh, on this particular issue uh, in the form of Professor Stephen Calabrese, a co-founder of the Federalist Society, a notable sort of conservative legal figure who had previously come out strongly in support of the view that former President Trump was disqualified under Section 3 and now uh, has uh, in a letter to uh, New York Times reporters and a, a new blog post reached the opposite conclusion. Tell us a little bit about that, Roger. Yeah, just to step back another step, this whole Section 3 argument got sort of a new fresh wind uh, behind it when uh, a couple months ago uh, we learned that uh, there's an upcoming law review article in the uh, Pennsylvania Law Review by two top, top, highly respected originalist scholars, Bill Bode, B-A-U-D-E, and Michael uh, Stokes Paulson. And they were saying, yes, Section 3 applies. It's not, it, it is self-executing and Trump is dead meat, and so are a whole lot of other people, uh, unnamed, but, uh, the, the, and it's a, it is a full-fledged, you know, law review article, a trillion footnotes. It's very impressive. And at the time, uh, Calabrese, um, Steve Calabrese was among the people, uh, singing its praises, very in, uh, enthusiastic. He spoke in the New York Times. He wrote his own blog post. And of course, one of the things that uh, Bode and uh, Paulson discuss is uh, this issue I mentioned earlier about 
does Section 3 apply to presidents, even though it doesn't use the word president? And, you know, basically, and Bowdoin Paulson devoted some time to that, and they basically they they felt it didn't pass the laugh test. Well, two other conservative scholars, uh, uh, Josh Blackman and Seth Tillman, then came out, and actually they had earlier uh, as well, and said that no, at least as to the oath provision, the president is not among the officials reached. And they make that argument. Frankly, I don't know whether they, when, when I read their piece before all of this, they were taking no position about whether the broader provision later applies to presidents. But but this one would be enough to to, to save Trump. And and Calabresi suddenly said, you know what, I I, I uh, I'm I'm persuaded, and he wrote his own uh, a couple of his own articles. And it's worth noting it was it was in response not to the uh, Blackman or Tillman piece, but to an op ed oh, that yes. Mike Mukasey yes. uh, wrote in Wall Street Journal, <laughs> uh, which uh, he's very honest about. You know, at least if you're going to change your mind about about something, uh, and if you ever doubted the persuasive ability of an op ed page, there you go. Uh, I think this this is a testament to that. One interesting development there, and obviously the academic debate behind a lot of this is going to feed into the legal debate and the judicial debate, um, as this is pretty uh, untreaded territory. Um, so there's going to be a lot of people looking for answers, and these academic debates will matter here more than they do maybe in a lot of other contexts. Uh, there's one other development worth mentioning. I'm just going to cover really quickly, and then we can go to Q&A to make sure we get a few in in time. Um, we have not seen a lot happen in the Mar-a-Lago case happening in the Southern District of Florida recently, but we have had a recent news story that there certainly bears on it. There's reports uh, broken, at least initially, by ABC News indicating that a former assistant of former President Trump, Molly Michael, somebody who worked for him at the White House and later at Mar-a-Lago, testified to federal investigators that uh, she was given notes by former President Trump on a paperwork that was classified, a stamp classified, written on the back, which is pretty exceptional. Uh, I don't believe the reporting was clear whether that was in the White House or in Mar-a-Lago, but she did indicate that later in Mar-a-Lago, after the FBI initial search, she found some additional documents, uh, I think underneath a, a organizer tray in a filing cabinet that she helped to return to the FBI the day that she located them. So seems to be taking these things seriously. The reporting indicates she was uncomfortable with how former President Trump handled these classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And then at some point after the uh, former president became aware of the federal investigation into his retention of these documents, although it's not clear exactly where in the sequencing this happened, she to he told her, you don't know anything about the boxes, something that is obviously relevant to the fact uh, to former President Trump, who is facing charges for obstruction um, in that particular case, for trying to obstruct the exact investigation that he's referring to in that case. You know, we don't know exactly how this fits into the prosecution or when exactly the investigators became aware of this, although it certainly seems like they've been in contact with Ms. Michael for a while now. Now, this, these facts aren't directly alleged in either the indictment or superseding indictment, as I recall. But that doesn't mean that they can't come out later, uh, certainly to show intent and state of mind on the part of the former president, something that's very relevant to obstruction charges uh, among some of the other charges he's facing in that case um, and really underscores uh, the seriousness of his potential liability there. Um, even if they can't get the classified documents in, the obstruction charges themselves are pretty compelling and problematic. And they it's this suggests there are a number of witnesses and pieces of evidence that we don't know about yet supporting those that investigators are gathering and being ready to bring to trial. So interesting note there. I don't think we know exactly how that's going to play into the trial yet, but I am almost certain it will. 
With that, uh, before we run lower on time, let me turn to question and answer here. Let's go to you, Jared. Jared, Jared, do you have a question for us? Yeah, I have a question that came out of uh, Don Jr.'s apparent Twitter account hack this week uh, that <clears throat> resulted in a false claim that his father had died. And it got me wondering, do the hearsay rules change when witnesses or defendants have died since they don't have any way of, of rebutting or clarifying anything? And um, secondarily, uh, later on after the trials are done, what happens to convictions when the defendant dies during appeals? I seem to recall that at least in some cases they might be vacated, but considering that some defendants continue coming up with reasons to appeal for pretty much ever, uh, at what point would that, would the, the possibility of the of it being vacated stop? These are very hard legal questions, and I haven't taken evidence class in a while. I believe there is an evidence rule that allows admissibility for when somebody is deceased very specifically for that reason. Lord, it's been a long time since I had to think about it, and I can't remember the exact contours. Anna, have you, Roger, I'm confident you have not taken evidence more recently than I have. Anna, have you taken evidence more recently, and do you remember the details of this rule? I mean, I have taken evidence more recently than I think both of you, but I do not remember the content of the rule, so I can't be of service here, but it looks like maybe Roger has an answer. Yeah, I have some, because this happened in the Enron case, uh, uh, maybe uh, Ken uh, Ken Lay was convicted and then died, and what happens? It's this is my I don't mean to make a joke, but it's my favorite motion in civil procedure. The prosecution files a suggestion of death. That's the name of the motion, and uh, and then it has to be dismissed, and uh, and so the conviction goes out the window. I think there was a effort there to. Uh, to save it, but it, it, it did not succeed. Uh, as for the other question, if somebody dies, is it hard to get their statements in? Yeah, yes, it is. Uh, there's a, uh, there might be, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a hearsay statement and, uh, it's it, in most situations, it's very difficult to get it in. All right. Uh, Jacob, why don't you hop on the mic and ask us our next question? Sure. Thanks. Um, so it's, this has been, seems like it's been pending for weeks, but what if Judge Cannon just never grants the Garcia hearing that the prosecution has requested? She just doesn't ever do it. Is that possible? The Garcia hearing he's referring to is uh, uh, the uh, what they in the Eleventh Circuit they call the proceeding and uh, where the government asks that uh, the the uh, judge inquire of a defense lawyer and and his client that make sure that the client is fully apprised of potential conflicts his lawyer may have because the lawyer is representing and then it can be other defendants or has represented other defendants in the past or in this case witnesses and uh actually the essentially the equivalent has come up in the uh Georgia cases and maybe Anna can uh, uh uh, address that, but the government can't. I mean, she'll she will address it. The question is, in what fashion? Woodward, uh, Stanley Woodward, who is the lawyer, one of the targets of this motion. He represents uh, Walt Walt Nauta and uh, at, at, at well at least seven other witnesses, seven other people in the investigation, but three that the government definitely wants to call. He wants, you know, he says, "Oh, I don't object." as long as it's an ex-party proceeding with just Judge Cannon and me, not the government. 
you know, she might try to do it that way. And then the government has to decide, do, do I really delay trial by trying to mandamus her? That, that would be the way to try to. And the problem is, you know, if, if the government goes on and wins a conviction and then these people get new lawyers and say, oh, oh, he had a conflict. You know, it's the government that loses, can lose the conviction. So the government does have to try to make sure everyone's adequately represented. And that's why they go through this procedure. Yeah, I think that's right. The only thing I would add to this is this is a weird case for incentives. Like usually judges are assumed to not to want to be overturned on appeal. So they have a strong incentive to pursue a Garcia hearing because it is essentially like extra, extra insurance to ensure you're not going to get overturned on appeal because of ineffective assistance of counsel that is or on certain related claim conflicts claims, you know it's weird here to have because we're in a case where people don't believe that judge has that incentive. Again, I, I I don't know that's a safe assumption to assume that she doesn't, but in a hypothetical where she says, I don't mind being overturned. uh, I want to do something to help former president Trump. It it is a weird situation. I'm not sure exactly the best way to handle it. The one thing I would note though, is that the Garcia hearing is again, it's kind of icing on the cake. It is the ultimate uh, prophylactic method to prevent the sort of risk. It's not the only one available to the government. I'm really just filing the motion for the Garcia hearing, which is public, gets a lot more information out there about potential conflicts, not as much as they might like, uh, not as directly communicated and documents having been communicated to the client uh, as it would be in a Garcia hearing or certain other contexts. But it arguably does help remedy it. It helps them, gives them data points they can point to on appeal to say, no, the client had lots of opportunities to know about that. They were fully aware of these choices and they essentially effectively waived them. Um, It's not perfect. It's definitely, you know, a little suboptimal. But I suspect if you never get a Garcia hearing, you'll see a lot more efforts by that part, uh, by the government in that direction um, to really bring out, hey, these are these issues. We need to talk about them um, and find ways to talk about them. It is complicated by the fact that you're not really supposed to approach somebody's client independent of their lawyers. You're supposed to communicate through their lawyers. But uh, it'd be an extraordinary circumstance. I suspect the government would try and get other things on the record to make very clear their conflict concerns here and build a case that it would be hard for the client to proceed unaware of those potential conflicts issues if they're tracking their own case. Let us go now to, we have a question here from Shannon. Shannon asks, what do you all think about the higher-ups in the Trump administration that were involved in January 6th that seem to be going untouched so far, as far as the DOJ, at least so far? People like Stephen Miller, Cash Patel, Sebastian Gorka, was their involvement just not prosecutable? It's just not like Trump was there by himself making it happen. What do you guys make of that? I mean, I guess we have to divide this into two groups. Um, we do have still uh, six unindicted co-conspirators that are identified and and have been pretty confidently identified in the press, uh, although they're not formally identified in the indictment of former President Trump uh, in D.C. District Court. So we have those six people. That's none of the people she's talking about here. So we can also maybe say, and then there's another ring of people outside that six um, that you might see some potential liability for. What do we make of what's going to happen to them? What might happen to them? Uh, how they fit into this case? Do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah. Well, the the short answer is I just don't know uh, what's going to happen at the federal level. I appreciate what Jack Smith seems to be doing in terms of pursuing this with laser like precision, because we can see what's happening in Georgia that. Uh, with 19 people, um, it's it's going to take a long time, although uh, some of them will go to trial soon. As far as, you know, my subjective sense of 
who still has exposure. I'm, you know, that's a touchy thing. I, I, I am very curious about the role that Boris Epstein played. And some people say he's a co-conspirator six. There are very, very important people in this who I don't, I do not think are going to get charged. I think Alex Jones was a, you know, in terms of why did January 6th happen? You know, after Trump, I think Alex Jones is a very important figure. I think Fox News is a very important figure, you know, in terms of because amplifying the lies, that's so important and it's protected. You know, if you weren't there on January 6th, it's protected. So there's a lot of people. I don't expect Ali Alexander to go, you know, you know, I I think you have to be deeply ensconced in this. And uh, that's that's just my hunch. I agree with what Roger said. I mean, they're obviously focusing on former President Trump. I don't think that means that they are going to stop there entirely. Uh, I mean, the Epstein case, right? Like a lot of the, if Epstein is co-conspirator six and what we know of Epstein, frankly, in relation to other cases like Mar-a-Lago case, um, you know, there's definitely actions there that you could see potentially maybe being part of some sort of obstruction charge, right? Um, supposedly there was disc- there's reported discomfort even by among Trump's own lawyers with some of the actions Epstein was taking in terms of restricting access or how they were conducting, responding to search requests, um, a similar sorts of involvement around January 6th. If he is this co-conspirator sex, we don't, we don't know that, but that's the kind of the, the, the best inference uh, I think people have drawn. Um, so, so you could see additional charges coming forward. Um, obviously, you know, you've, as, as Rogers laid out really well, you've seen this diverse approach as to how you handle the broad conspiracy, one doing Trump alone, one doing Trump and everyone else all at once. And there is a case for the former approach when your primary concern is to get this trial done as quickly as possible to move it to, to you know, get it done hopefully before the 2024 election. And that seems to be something the special counsel is concerned about. Again, I think if this were, did not have the election schedule, you probably would not have seen these indictments brought for a few more months um, because they were obviously still developing their investigation. You look at the Mar-a-Lago case, um, right? Like they had a superseding indictment within a month and a half um, indicating that they were still very much actively developing elements of this case. I think you see signs of that in the, uh, in the DC case as well. Um, they're bringing this now because they thought they had a strong enough case to bring it. They thought they wanted to start the proceeding and they have the time pressure. And in that case, I, I think you will see other things happen. They will be in separate proceedings and they may happen substantially later uh, after they get the kind of Trump case well underway or cleared out of the way. Um, but I would not assume certainly those six co-conspirators are out of the uh, risk of legal liability. The three specific people you mentioned, Steve Miller, Sebastian Gorka, I, I don't see that. I don't recall them playing a central role that I can really recall um the cash patel one either really although i will say you know he's very involved with the uh mar-a-lago legal defense um regarding former president trump's authority to declassify things and that involves a lot of assertions about actions taken by former president trump that some people have questioned including people in his administration um so he may be involved there and then the question is you know what does he assert what does he testify maybe that becomes an issue all this is highly speculative we shouldn't make any assumptions about it but um you know for those six people, I would be surprised if something doesn't happen down the road. For these others, it's not outside of the woods. Again, this is all happening at a faster time frame than these things usually happen. And you wouldn't necessarily expect them to happen all at once. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, both Roger and Scott. And I just will say something that I am keeping my eye on that kind of goes beyond uh, 
the, you know, January 6th, the day itself that you guys are talking about is um, the, uh, you know, plans to access voting machines in multiple states. Uh, there has not been a lot of publicly available signs that the special counsel has been focused on that. Um, but there has been a little bit of reporting trickling out about, uh, you know, the, the witnesses being asked about plans to access voting machines. Uh, we did a, a big piece on Coffee County uh, because it relates to the Fulton County investigation. And there are some folks who have been indicted in Fulton County related to uh, unauthorized access to voting machines in Coffee County. But if you look, when you start reporting and looking into those fact patterns, you realize that there's a lot of people who are involved uh, in these plans in multiple states. Uh, it's often the same characters. And I, I will be very interested to see if that is an area that the special counsel starts um, looking into. I, I don't know because of various reasons. You know, it may be that uh, they they think that, you know, it's uh, something that should be left to state prosecutors. Um, it, it could be, you know, other reasons as to why they would not, uh, you know, stretch the investigation into that uh, realm of things. But, you know, I, it's just something to to uh, keep your eye on. And it's worth noting a lot of these charges probably will be spun out of the special counsel's office and handed over to federal prosecutors and U.S. attorney's offices or maybe other parts of Maine justice. Uh, that's not unusual for special counsel's office, something handling something this broad. And those offices are going to move on their own pace with their own procedures. They're not going to be able to move at the same speed that the special counsel's office does. They just have a lot more bureaucracy. So another reason why to just be a little more patient to see what the, the full scope of liability coming out of these events eventually is. We have two last questions. Let me read them back to back just so we can try and handle both in our five remaining minutes. Bob asks, can former President Trump avoid attending his trials in an effort to discredit the proceedings and allow him to campaign? If not, what are the minimum requirements for a defendant to be present? Can he attend virtually? And question two from Josh Knight, Judge Chutkin implied she might move the trial date up earlier in time in response to Trump's public attacks on various parties. How might that work with the likelihood of such an action? Uh, Anna, why don't you handle the first question, and then I'll turn to you for the second question, Roger. Yeah, so this is one of those things where I wish Quinta, I wish Quinta was here. She wrote about this. Um, uh, I will say, uh, I will say that, you know, it varies by jurisdiction. There's different rules in, in federal court, uh, versus state courts. There are some states that, uh, allow you to waive a defendant's presence. My understanding is that, that in the New York, uh, Alvin Bragg case, Trump cannot waive his appearance. Does that sound right, Roger and Scott? I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's my recollection as well, but yeah. I am not confident in that. But that's my recollection from prior conversations. Mm -hmm. And then in Georgia, you know, I've asked a few defense attorneys about this. Uh, they were not entirely sure, but they got the sense that, you know, it could be possible to waive the presence of a defendant at trial. They they didn't, uh, they weren't aware of anything that would prevent that, but they said that, you know, they've never, they've never heard of it, um, but it, it's possible. Um, and then and I, I think Roger and Scott, you guys will have a better sense in the federal system of, you know, some of the considerations there. But I think usually you have to attend the trial in the federal system. Is that right? I, I thought so. I don't know what the uh, uh, sanction would be. Uh, I don't think it can go forward without you, without a, a waiver. And so I don't know if they would, you know, 
send a, a warrant for his arrest and and bring him in forcibly or uh, or declare him to be a fugitive uh i don't know how it would proceed but i i thought uh, what is scott do you know so there's a piece Dan Richmond wrote for us on August 8th at Lawfare uh, called Does Donald Trump Have to Attend His Own Trial, which covers the federal rules. Um, and my recollection, uh, having read this piece a while ago uh, and skimmed it very briefly right now, is that you, you know the president can waive, waive attendance at a lot of parts of the trial and a lot of proceedings in the federal system. Um, there's a question about what constitutes waiver, what's adequate, uh, and the courts are going to be hesitant to you know do anything other than a very express waiver, probably in a lot of other cases. And there's a lot of lack of guidance and a lot of ambiguity regarding how federal judges should handle this um, that uh, Dan points to as a point of potential concern, uh, including appellate concern in these proceedings. So open questions there, a very good question. I recommend checking out Dan's piece on that. Let's go to the second question about rescheduling the DC trial. Judge Chetkin suggesting she'd move it up earlier. Roger, how, how would that work? Do you have a sense of that? And what is, how likely does that seem to you? It does sound like uh, in the category of idle threats, <laughs> it's a way to, you know, a way to get him to really stop without uh, uh, to, to threaten him with moving it up. It's just uh, he's she's already sort of indicated that he needs this time to prepare. So it begins to sound dicey to move it up. You know, I, I, I think ordinarily if people refuse to follow the terms of release and they continue to intimidate witnesses and pollute the jury pool you could revoke bail and uh of course that that would be a pretty controversial thing here too but uh i, I so uh, I, it's but it sounds it's an interesting thought uh maybe maybe she thinks that would be safer uh, and maybe it would be. It's a good question. I, I'll know that is not unusual practice generally for judges. Uh, you know, that's a basis on which judges have rescheduled these things. There's actually a lot of speculation. That's what happened in the D.C. Circuit around some of the Evan Corcoran testimony. There's all closed proceedings, but that happened in a very expedited time frame. Uh, I wrote a piece speculating that it was because there was classified information at hand. And that actually was partially true, we've learned, but not the whole story, probably. Um, so it also may have been a witness intimidation thing. Um, so it might be her. My guess is she's channeling the fact that that is like an accepted remedy in this case and might be sensitive to it, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem super realistic. They're actually already set a pretty aggressive time frame, uh, and there is legitimately large amounts of discovery and other items that are a little tricky to work through, um, if not maybe as massive as Trump and his attorneys have asserted. Um, so there are, it does seem like they'll have to find other sanctions. I don't know what exactly those are. Um, maybe just financial sanctions at a certain point, but it is a trick. It's a hard, one of the many hard issues Judge Chetkin has and these other judges have in managing these cases with a defendant like this. That's just unlike any other defendant in American history. With that, I think we have reached our hour mark. Uh, this has been another great conversation. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Anna, for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, everybody. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. 
This podcast was edited by Jen Pat Jahal and produced by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. Thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.